Welcome to Lemmy Works, brought to you by Leadership Education Mentoring Institute. We are inspiring parents, mentors, and communities as they embark on the journey of transformational project-based education. Hi, this is Tatiana Fallon. Hi, this is Heidi Christensen. We're so excited to be your hosts. Hi, everyone. Tati and I are here today, and going to be a little bit different. Tati is going to be talking about simulations. So we're going to be having a discussion. I'm going to be asking questions. I'm really looking forward to this. This is going to be fun. Yeah, it'll be a, a different than we normally do. So it's always fun to do something different. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. The feedback that we got from the trainings that we held this year, I asked people who they wanted to have on the podcast and they said you <laughs> they wanted to hear more from you. So, um, and specifically about simulations. And so I'm really excited to be able to, you know, meet that need and, and have you talk about that. Um, can we start just by talking about, um, you know, what was the first simulation that you really remember? You know, how, how did it affect you? Okay. Um, well, I was, I was 12 when my mom found leadership education. So we had already been doing a lot of, um, I mean, I was homeschooling from when I was like kindergarten. My mom had always done experiential things in our homeschool, but never had done like a form of simulation. So I would have to say that probably the first simulation that I can remember was, um, my teacher I took a, a class on the civil war it wasn't the sort of freedom class but it was a civil war class and my my teacher at the time he was um him and his wife taught the class and she would teach the constitution part and he would teach the, the civil war part and he had gotten risk players and glued them onto Rummy cube pieces and then he had drawn a huge map of the battle of Gettysburg and then he had assigned each of us a specific part of the army to play. So like he assigned me to be like the quartermaster, which was like, I had no idea what the quartermaster was. And then um, we, we reenacted the battle of Gettysburg and we all had to explain like the specific thing that our unit of the army would, was in charge of. So like I had to go home and do a ton of research on like, what was the quartermaster and what did it do and why it was important and what was it roles and what how would the quartermaster maybe would have like served in the battle of Gettysburg and it was really insightful because like the whole battle was started over like the quartermaster's request for shoes right so like that's what the whole reason the battles end up happening in Gettysburg because of the Gettysburg shoe factory and so um yeah but that was probably the first one I I can remember like a formal simulation in a class setting and then, of course, like Shakespeare play is like one giant simulation that happened that same year. We, we did The Tempest and I played, oh gosh, I think it's Sebastian. Can't remember. Whatever the other silly drunk guy was with a, a, like that role. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a long time. So yeah, those are two simulations I think that I remember. And as, you know, as my, my mom and Tiffany developed the projects, it definitely became uh, more and more like had the opportunity to participate in more simulations from younger age and especially was uh, super super blessed to be able to do a lot with Diane Jepsen 
um, at the time, and I don't know if she still does this, but she held like a week long simulation. And we'd um, one year she had held it at the actual state capitol. And we had like this constitutional convention and it was a week long and we stayed at other people's homes. And like, we did all this um, like simulating constitution and it was really, really fun. It was just like probably 20 kids in one of the capital meeting rooms. <laughs> and um, I think I was probably 14. I did that. Maybe it was older than that though. Yeah. It's, it's all kind of blurred. So I don't know when exactly happened, but yeah. So um. I love simulations. It's it's one of the most powerful things that I've had the opportunity to do in my life. I think um, the memory I have that's most impactful about simulations, and I've told this story before, but I don't think I've told it in the podcast, but um, when I was 20, um, I took a gap year from school. I didn't, I, I was, I was supposed to go back in the fall, but I hurt my back pretty bad. 20 doing, I don't, I've, it's just genetic. So um and so I, I really actually couldn't walk so I couldn't go to school because I couldn't really walk so I was healing and my neighbor who uh, had been in my church community approached me she came to the door one day and she stopped on the door and she said hey we just got our property tax bill and um it's like a hundred times more than we had last year and we're like in our 80s and we live on a fixed income and this, we just don't have this money. Like we've worked our whole entire lives for for our home and now we own it and we could lose it because we can't pay this money. Like it had jumped so high, like tripled. And we just like, this isn't money. We just like can pull out of nowhere. Like we got to, and she's like, can you do anything about this? <laughs> she's like, um, I'm like a 20 year old kid who doesn't even know how to buy a home like, I don't know what you're talking to me but but she had known that I had um all throughout my teenage years been pretty active in like the legislature and like being a lobbyist and stuff and so I had a lot of experience with that and so um anyway so she um she'd known that I had I at least knew something about government right so so I said, sure, I'll, you know what, I'm, I'm still healing. I, I was able to walk by this point, but um, I was still healing. So it wasn't like 100% better. And it's like, sure, like, let's just hold town meeting and we'll just gather together. And so I went to the library and I had requested to use the meeting room on a certain day. And then she, uh, I think she put in the newspaper because she had f friends or someone in our neighborhood who was like a local newspaper right and so then she just told everybody she knew and I was like okay we're just gonna hold a meeting I thought 20 people would show up um I invited the county assessor to come because he was also like a mile from our house and my, my dad knew him and so I invited him to come and, and just talk to people about what had happened and our options and what was going to happen so I thought maybe we had 20 people in our neighborhood show up and I was like this 20 year old kid and the night of the meeting, there was like 250 people show up. Our local representative shows up, both of them, um, like the senator and the representative for the state level. Two of the county commissioner people showed up. The county assessor showed up. Um, the county judge, I mean, county sheriff showed up. Like, so all these like, like, you know, government officials show up to this meeting at the library and like 200 people show up and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a big problem, bigger than I thought. I'd. And here I am like this 20 year old kid who's like supposed to be running this meeting, right? And I had only really prepared for for 20 people because <clears throat> I didn't know to the severity in which this had impacted like the whole county. Um, and so 
I got there at the meeting and I was like, this is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I like had this like, oh my gosh, total panic moment. And then I realized like, I've led big meetings before in simulations. Like I've led simulations with over a hundred people in them. And, and this is just like a giant simulation. And I've, I've run meetings, I've run orders and I've followed parliamentary procedure and I've done all these things. So it's like, I'll just pretend it's a simulation and, and do the same thing. So I had already written up an agenda and I was just, you know, so I was just like, it's just slightly bigger and more angry group, but, and it ended up um, running that whole meeting at like 20 and um, we, we formed a committee that went up to the Capitol and petitioned to change the laws. And we didn't get the law changed particularly. It was a pretty intense like overhaul of the system that we were trying to do. We did get a few things passed that legislative session, but um, we just, um, you know, it was it was a pretty big tax, property tax issue. And, you know, those are always really hard to fight for. But I was able to do that totally because I had done simulations before. Like I, I had been under that pressure and that stress of like being on the spot, having to think, being people angry and mad at you, being people frustrated with what you're saying or how you're doing things, and then being able to just hold your cool and, and steer the ship. And so I had I'd already had experience with it. And so when I actually had to do it in real real like like for reals with serious things on the line, while I don't think that the pressure was gone, it wasn't overwhelming. You know what I mean? Like it was bearable because I'm like, oh, I know how to do this. And I'm, I've made mistakes already doing that. Right? I've already failed a ton doing this. So I already know what doesn't work when you're doing with the large people. And so I was, I'm super grateful for my education because I was totally prepared to, to step in and, and to lead that meeting. So simulations, I think are one of the most powerful tools that mentors have, but also one of the scariest things that mentors have. And I've thought about this for a while. It's like, why as a mentor, like for me in my class, I don't have a problem doing simulations or putting them into my um, curriculum, right? Or to my classroom setup. But I know for like a lot of new mentors for the first year, it's like, if they don't have it written in there, they're just not going to do it. They're not going to like go out of their way to find a simulation to teach something. Um, and so <clears throat> I, I started thinking like, why aren't, why are people hesitant to do simulations? Um, and so I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about more like what is at its very root, what is a simulation? Um, I don't know if you have thoughts like that you can add to this or not, um, but the thing that came to me, okay, so I read all the time because, okay, I listen to books all the time. I don't actually have time. I don't live in this idyllic world where my four children leave me alone for very much. So I can't really read, but I do, listen to lots of books because I can do that while I'm mowing the lawn or doing other things. And I just listened to a book called The Bird Way, <laughs> super not related to education in many ways, but um, we are part of this nature study group and I wanted to learn about birds and do some bird watching. So I was like, oh, I'll read a book about birds. And um, in the book, the author talks about how most studies of birds has occurred in like the European theater and the American North American theater. And we haven't spent a lot of time studying the tropical birds or the birds in like um, the the Pacific and the like Australia, because it's really hard to get to those birds. Like you could die trying to study these birds, right? Because you're in the middle of the jungles. But what she's what they've been observed about the birds is that the the there are certain ranking of species of birds that are more intelligent than other birds. 
And among the birds that are the most intelligent birds, they all have one thing in common, which is because they all have different society structures. Like some have like this hierarchy structure, some like do communal raising of kids, some some do mate for life. Like they all have different society structures, but they all have one thing in common. And the one thing that they have in common is they all play. Like every single one of these bird species plays. Ravens plays, um, crows play. I mean, those those are the most intelligent birds that you would be familiar with if you're like on the north northern hemisphere, like in America, raven and crows. Um, magpies are also very intelligent birds and they, they play as well. Um, but the most that they think is probably the most intelligent bird that they, I mean, obviously it's like, you know, you can't like definitive, like this is the most intelligent bird because we can't even agree what intelligence is in any field. But um, there's the Kia in Australia and these birds are like so smart. They will like, let's say that you were driving on a road and you park your car to go on a hike or something in this area of, of Australia. You park your car, you get out of the car, and you'll get swamped with like three or four Kia birds just like flying around you, like distracting you. And you're like, oh my gosh, the birds are attacking me. They don't attack you. They're just like flying and scaring you. While you're opening your door to do that, two other Kia birds will crawl underneath your car, hop up behind you, and get into your car. Pillage your car for anything shiny or food related, and then fly out. Then as soon as they're gone, and you've been stolen, um, they... <laughs> stolen from they will um fly away and then they'll leave you alone and they like do this because <laughs> they were actually talking about how somewhere in a kia stash is like 1300 dollars worth of, of australian <laughs> money because this kia flew in and grabbed it off the dashboard i don't know why some man had 1300 dollars sitting on his dashboard but whatever um so like it's a serious problem like rental companies won't rent cars to people in that area because if they go anywhere there the kias will like take all of the rubber parts off the cars because they know they can get their beak on them and pull them off and then i don't know what they use them for but anyways i have a point to this story so <laughs> the kias um they play with each other from they have a very long adolescent they're kind of a parrot bird so they do live longer than like a songbird and they can live up to 30 or 50 years somewhere around there but their adolescence is like 15 years that they allow these kids to be they're they're, they're, they're you know the children and or without children they have a specific word for it but I'm not an ornithologist so I don't, I don't remember the word then they're in this adolescence the kids are really taking care of like they, they take care of their food they help them they teach them but they take care of a lot of their needs and a ton of the time of these adolescents is just play so they're playing a lot and that's one of the reasons why they cause so much havoc on humans is because they're playing with humans as well and the human stuff and um so the, so this bird they're notorious for playing. The other intelligent animals that play are um, orcas. Orcas are some of the most intelligent animals or mammals um, that we know of, and dolphins, um, I guess in the porpoise family. Um, and they also play a ton. They play a lot. Like they'll just spot orcas doing the weirdest behavior in order to find out that they're playing. They're totally playing. Dolphins will play all the time. And so what they've discovered is that there's actually a part of the brain that has to do with the decision-making part of the brain that when you play, it helps it grow. And so they were talking about, there's a couple of Kias that were rescued because they were hurt when they were in adolescence and then they were put in captivity. Um, and because the, just the nature of what ended up happening, they weren't put in captivity with other Kias. They were just put by themselves. 
And so um, these birds, because they're isolated and they never were able to play with kias in their adolescence, they actually can't function in the kia society. And they also can't like, really, they can't ever be free because they never learn to play. Um, and so this is just one scientist hypothesis, but they were talking about how there's some aspect of communal play that develops the brain to be able to understand and make critical decisions better. So it's, I mean, obviously, you know, brain science in and of itself is kind of a newer thing as we've been able to like get technology to even watch what's happening in the brain, right? Um, and so it's not a super developed field and it's probably going to keep developing even more. But there's there's a there's an actual chemical and biological thing that happens when we allow our children to play. And so simulations, in my opinion, is just an extension of that play. It's an extension of the play that we do when we're young, you know, we play house, like we learn, we establish roles and there's rules. Um, and that's the other thing that's really fascinating too, is what they realize is that the games that they play all have rules and like they're, and, they, and all the birds know how to play the rules. And if you don't play by the rules, they kick you out. It's just super oh. fascinating. Like, it's wow. like, so a key element is there has to be like rules to the game in order for the game to like be fun and be worth um be worth playing. So um as I was thinking about that, it just really hit me that that's what simulation is. We're taking play, we're building rules for it, we're giving an objection, like an, a directive and an object for the play to achieve. And then we're asking the students to play. And so I think the reason why, in my opinion, and maybe I'm wrong here that most mentors, a lot of mentors don't um, do simulations is because we're afraid to play. I don't know. Oh, definitely. Well, definitely. I mean, I think that, well, I know for myself, it was like probably about three years until I got simulations and I was willing to take that risk because yeah simulations can fail. And I didn't see how the good in the failure. And I was like, I was still in teacher mode rather than mentor mode and didn't understand everything. Once I got it, it's like, oh my gosh, let's do simulations every single time. This is so cool. But it was really scary to do and to start. So. Yeah. I think actually, um, Brene Brown has a book called, uh, daring, daring to be brave or daring greatly okay. um, daring, daring greatly oh what's the name of that book oh um yeah i'll look it up because i know the book you're talking about yeah but basically she talks in there i think i think it's encouraged no is it i was daring greatly maybe not encouraged to be brave one of those something like that but in that book she talks about the power of vulnerability um and how um there's there when we are in in a, in a relationship with an individual whatever relationship that may be um there has to be in order for the relationship to be mutually beneficial there has to be a, a vulnerability on both ends right so like if if i'm vulnerable with you and then you 
shun that or don't reciprocate that vulnerability with another like cue of vulnerability, then the relationship kind of ends or gets shuts down or I have to repair um, because like I extended this and then you didn't reciprocate it. But if for the, but so I think the issue that a lot of mentors have with the simulations is it's a it's a place of vulnerability because you have to be able to be like I'm going to allow you to make all the choices as to whether this happens or not, and my role is just going to present the game to you. So it's almost like you are we all go back to the playground and we're all young again. And then you ask the kids on the playground to play with you. Hey, you want to play tag? And then they say, no, then you probably aren't going to ask them to play tag again. Right. So, but it's different. It's like, you're the mentor and you're coming up to the group of kids and you're saying, Hey, play this game with me. And if they say no, or they don't play, then that's a pretty, that's a painful rejection. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, as in, in a more of a class setting, I think we have a, a real opportunity to encourage them. But I know I've been in simulations where it's like I plan this all out and then the kids don't engage at, or they don't engage to the level that would really make it fun. They just, they're afraid because they don't understand. So, I mean, there are some amazing um simulations out there that I've heard about but I can just see like some of my students who are who are like brand new scholars who haven't been exposed to leadership education you know is there a way to kind of ease the kids into simulations as well you know just easier ones or different formats or something like that that might be a little bit easier for the mentor too yeah I think I think a lot of it has to do with like personality. I mean, so like if you look at the like the big five personality, there's the the trait of openness. So or you could also call it like yellow personalities or maybe more sanguine personalities or all the different terms that kind of describe someone who's more willing to be open to experiences. And so those generally those those kids or extroverts, have you give them title they're going to be easier to be like oh we're playing a game i love games let's do a game and they'll jump onto that and be able to 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 kind of um take that and go so if i'm working with a total new group of kids i'll try to establish where are my sanguines or where are my extroverts or where are my um my open open my character traits of openness kids and then establish things that they're passionate about um, and then if I kind of make a simulation that's based off of those, then they play and I can get those kids who are already, you know, predisposed to want to play and I get them to play because they want to play, then, then I find that I can get the others to play along because they're already model of like, oh, we're playing. There's always going to be those kids though that that just personality is not lend itself to that at all. Like they they don't have the desire to to like they're they're usually like really high introverts or like it takes them a while to feel like they can safe enough to play. And so um, yeah, you're always going to have those kids that. I don't know, even if you work with them for years, they still have a hard time engaging in the simulation. 
And I think that just has to do with like their personality. It doesn't mean they're not learning. I just think that they just don't, it, it's a harder learning environment for them. So if you are that type of mentor that doesn't necessarily engage, want to engage, like that's not your personality. Your openness trait is pretty on the other side of the spectrum where you're a high introvert or you're, you know, a melancholy personality, um, then I think you have to just be aware of this as your weakness and, and then know that um, either find people in your community that are those, have those as their strengths and try to learn from there or just be okay with, with really stumbling and figuring it out because it's going to, you're going to feel uncomfortable if this is not like your person. I mean, I even feel uncomfortable because I'm a high introvert. So like when I have to create a simulation, run a simulation, I always feel butterflies in my stomach and like dread and not want to do it. Like even when I do training simulations, every time I write a, tra a simulation for training, I'll be like, ah, oh, this is going to fail. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? Like, um, I mean, I still feel that way all the time. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I, I do agree. I'm, I'm a pretty high introvert as well, but I've gotten to the point where I've felt those butterflies enough. It's kind of like, it feels good. <laughs> <laughs> I think it I, depends on like your, like how safe and comfortable you feel with this, with the class you're working with, because I think, that, you know, yeah, yeah, that's true. That and the butterflies true. are like, this is going to be so exciting. See what you're going to do with this. Right. Like, so if you have yeah. like, you have a good rapport with your students and, and you've built that, then it can be really exciting. But when I think you're first starting out, there's always like, ah, walking on ice here. We'll see what happens. Um, yeah, I do. Uh, I, go ahead. I, I do think that there are like easier simulations to do. I mean, like ones that are not, um, they're more action-based rather than you're putting them into a different situation like they have to play a role yeah like just starting out with basic like let's pretend that you know hypothetical simulations I always like to do like zombies or aliens or stuff like that because there's just like especially with the young younger kids the older kids they don't really want to do that but um the younger kids they love playing those kind of stuff and it's easy to get them like excited about doing that so yeah I there's also just like simple task-based simulations where let's like um the kids will get really involved with those because it's not like a, like the floor is lava you got to get across it you know like things you would see at like a ropes course or those kind of things those are always a lot easier um and things that they can relate to so like you know talk, you know, like let's simulate a courthouse where we have a cat on trial and we're trying the cat to see like you know like is the cat worthy of living in the home whatever and then you have like cat people and not cat people and they're debating whether the cat has the merit to live in the home right so they're they're talking about something that <laughs> i just pick cats because like like vehement i don't know i have three or four nieces that just obsessed with cats so i'm like that's something that that age group loves so like <laughs> just like oh, yeah. that. um yeah. so <laughs> Um, yeah, I think there's definitely things that you can start out with if your if your classroom is definitely struggling with simulations. That's like an easier topic and a, a funner thing. Not so like weighty as like oh let's all pretend that we're um, you know reenacting like the debate on the Emancipation Proclamation or something. You know like that's they gotta do a lot more research and it's hard to get into that role because they don't necessarily understand that. You know. So yeah, I know I know one of the simulations that um one of my classes had I think it was a quest class 
and we tied people to chairs. And I, I do want to say that um, I had scholars tie each other to chairs. There, there is an issue if you as a mentor, as an adult is tying a child to the chair, you, you don't want to do that. Just I speak from experience. Uh, not personal, but it happened in my community that um, somebody was duct taping kids. And I'm like, that does not sound well, <laughs> sound great in the um, <laughs> in something. So have them tie each other to chairs, but they had to get across the room being tied to a chair. And it was, it was, you know, one of those things, do hard things, you know, roadblocks, whatever, you know, and they had the best time. They will never forget how, you know, that was a, a trial they had to get through. And um, we could tie so much to that in the debrief. And we just, we, we had such a great time in the debrief afterwards, but they, they loved being tied to the chair and they had to get across the room to get their favorite candy bar that was taped to the wall. I love that. That's awesome. See, like simple yeah. things like that. I think sometimes think people some simulations are like this intense formal thing, you know, because I mean, we do have some simulations written to the projects, you know, like you have the Nuremberg trial and, and you have the Supreme Court trial and Quest and Nuremberg trial and Hero and you have like, you know, the battle simulation in Gettysburg and you have like you, you have like these big simulations that are written to the project. So people start thinking, oh, it's like an all day class thing. It's like, oh, I mean, how long did it take them? 15, 20 minutes worth of class time <laughs> trying to crawl across the floor and tape to chairs. Like, I love, I love it. So like, I think the process that happens in my mind is like, if, if there's like a concept that's very ethereal, meaning like it's difficult for you to wrap your hand, head around or explain. It's almost like something that would better belong in the poet domain. Like if there's a concept that you're like, poet's going to say this better than, than I could ever say it, right? that's generally it's something that's going to come across very good in a simulation because um, it, it, simulations lend themselves to us learning things that are intrinsic, then the intrinsic becomes manifest into reality. And so like, <clears throat> have you read the book, The Girl That Drank the Moon? We're interrupting this broadcast to invite you to ask questions or share your epiphanies in the comment section. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a good review on the platform you are using because that really helps others find our content. Also, check out our website at lemmymentortraining.com. No, it's a children's book. It's a children's okay. book. It's okay. But <laughs> uh, my kids are listening to it in the car as we're driving right now. And the bog monster is a very interesting character this lady has created. And we haven't finished it, so I don't know how this whole thing plays out. But um, he, the bog monster is, he's hes tied to the bog, you know, which obviously probably represents like filth and like the, you know, it's a swamp. And he was created in the bog. And then he came to being an awareness and then he decided he could leave the bog. And then as he just, he leaves the bog, he comes, he, it's such a visual experience for him that he leaves this bog that he wants to learn to communicate with others what it's like leaving the bog. And the only way that he can find the way to, to, to leave the bog is to use poetry. So this is like a poetic bog monster, super funny. It's a super, super funny like character. This, this author is really genius, but um, very well-written book. I'm pretty sure I got a Newbery Award. Um, and um, 
she so the author talks like that the bog monster has now that he's been through this bog can only see the world in poetry so he's constantly teaching the the obviously the heroine in the book through poetry and um and one of the things that he's like that's how we can express these really difficult concepts that he's trying to help this the person like the, the heroine discovers through poetry because he's like if i can give her the words that are beautiful to explain the things that are not and i think simulations can do similar things right but they do it for it physically right so poetry can give us words to to explain things that we can't really understand with like like lists or charts or maps or those kind of things but i think simulations allow us to experience things physically that we can't understand um necessarily very well does that make sense no it, it definitely does i mean just like when you go back to your experience with the community and the um the property taxes you had felt that you had gone through that experience and so you were able to apply it um, later on in your life. And so these simulations, it's something that you want them to feel and you want them to go through it in reality. But um, but it's not, if somebody had sat you down in a classroom and said, this is what you have to do, or this is what you can do if you are you know, presented with this challenge and just read this textbook go through and do this worksheet after you're done with the textbook that never would have been something that you put in your heart and you know were able to to make your own where if you go through that feeling I mean like when you read poetry or or listen to a hymn in church or something it it penetrates your soul almost I mean and that's really what we're going for is that penetration into your soul that that transference of soul um so that the kids really get it it's it's part of who they are yeah i really um i like the word touchstone you know what a touchstone is um it's, i've heard the word but explain it so um thomas Paine talks about crises are really good touchstones of character and he talks about this in his um American Crisis paper number one, which they read in Key of Liberty. But um, so I was, when I read it, I was like, what the heck is a touchstone? So a touchstone was when gold was used and, and silver and, you know, were used as the primary like currency. People could um, take their gold and diminish it, right? The quality or like paint it or do different things. So you couldn't know if it was really gold, right? So there's a special type of stone that has got a hard enough strike um, resistance that you can hit the, the everything on it, every type of metal, and it and, and it will show the purity of that metal. It's called a touchstone. And so, you know, people who are merchants, they carry these touchstones in their in their bags or satchels, and as they traded, they would take every one of the stones and they would or every one of the coins and they'd mark it against the touchstone. And if it was strong enough to you know, they could know if it was going to be gold or silver or copper, if it was just like a fake or whatever kind of a counterfeit piece of currency. Um, speaking of which, I just listened to um, Hans Christian Andersen's story about the currency that's not real. That was super, really powerful story if you haven't read that one. But um, what's the title of that? It's called The Coin, I think. The Coin. Okay. 
Yeah. That's a really power. It just may, it'll make you totally cry. It's just like, what? It's and I'm, I am writing down all of these books that you're talking about, <laughs> even the bird book and all of that. So everybody okay. who's listening, just look in the show notes. I'll have links. <laughs> Anyways. So touchdown is, um, I, I feel like simulations is that touchdown. And the reason why I feel like they're critical for education, um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell, I'll, I'll share two stories with this. Um, so um, when, after that happened at that meeting, I formed a, a group of like um, fellow concerned citizens and we started what we called our citizens commission. No, we were the citizens tax commission or something. We came up with some name, but <laughs> anyways, but yeah, citizens commission on tax fairness. That's what we were. And um, we just form, formed a, a lobbyist organization. And this man called me, um, he became my mentor. It's uh, a wonderful man. His name is Ron Mortensen. And he, um, he called me after the meeting. I was like, hey, kid, what, who are you? And I was just like, oh, this is who I am. He's like, you're, you're crazy. You know, like, well, I don't know. I just did this. And he's like, well, you know, and so he met, I met him and we started working together. And um, so we had two bills that we had written in the legislature. And so I was, I was, he was the main leader. We had, I mean, we had him and we had another man and they were both like in their fifties and sixties really well accomplished amazing careers like awesome people to be presenting right so I was a 20 year old kid I was just helping where I could giving advice and like following I wasn't ever like the one who was speaking you know because it's like I didn't really I mean why would I if he could do it right does a way good job but we had at one point we had a bill that was in um committee and we had two bills in committee at the same time and so we were hoping that they wouldn't overlap. So he went to one committee and went to another committee. And we had already worked on like our speaking points and everything we were gonna say. And he's like, if I don't go back, you're gonna have to do this. And I'm like, okay, well, hopefully you'll be back. And I just kind of was like, he'll be back. There's like, you know, what are the odds that they're both up at the exact same time? So when they're waiting and he doesn't show up and I'm like, it's time for those to hear public hearing. And then like things moved around. I'm like, oh my gosh, I guess I get to go speak. And it was in front of a Senate committee. And so I'm like, okay, I got to represent our organization. So I went up there to go speak and I had everything ready. And I just gave our, gave our two things that we want to talk about representing our, our organization. <laughs> and then usually what ends up happening is you say what you want to say, and then they let you sit down. Cause like, it's just, you're, they're just taking public comment. Like it's not a big deal. But then I guess this one senator was just like, oh, I'm just going to grill this 20-year-old kid because it'll be fun. I don't I don't know what he was thinking. He wasn't the nicest of guys. He was huge. He was like a really big, burly man. And he, had, he was a former cop or a former police officer with, um, I think he was a sheriff. He had one of those like police officer mustaches, you know, just like the mustache. It's like this big, huge guy. I was like super intimidating. And he was always bullying people. I feel like, anyways. Um so he just started grilling me, like tons of questions, like all the time, like, just like kept going, going. And I would answer each one of these questions. And then he'd answer another question, another question. I just answer them the same way, like very, very calmly and distinctly. And, and then like, I get, finally he let me go and I got down. <laughs> the, 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 by that time though, my, my friend Ron had come back and it's like, what, listen, he's like, wow, you did amazing. Like, how do you get, how were you so cool? He was totally like grilling you like pieces and you were totally just so cool. And I was top back and I'm like, 
oh, I've had much worse oral exams than that. <laughs> Way much worse oral exams. Like <laughs> I've had some brutal oral exams where your mentor just doesn't even like let up for a second. And you're like, you just, you don't get an air to breathe. Like, so yeah, no, that was bad. That was scary, but it's, wasn't near as scary as some of the oral exams uh, I've had before. <laughs> so it's like, I had had so many simulations where I had been pestered like that, right? And you had to think on your feet, and you had to do it. It's like when it came to real life, it was like, oh, yeah, done this before. It sucks. But I got through it. And the, the best way to keep get through it is just to keep your cool and, and, and do it, right? But the thing that I really love about simulations, going back to point earlier about touchstone, is that I knew that if I had been, if I were going to be grilled, I could do it. Because I had already tested my metal and my metal had already been tested and I had already shown that I could do this. And well, the first couple of times, I, let's just say I didn't do it very well. Um, I think I, I think my first little exam, they decided to do a, a Lemmy training. I'm pretty sure. Because <laughs> like, I, I, someone this, this last year was like, oh, I remember I came to Lemmy training and when you made, made you do your oral. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot about that. But you're right. Yeah. It was like me. And like then the whole entire group like all these women and they're like let's have our our uh, quest kids do their oral exams here <laughs> so yeah I mean I had already been put in some really uncomfortable situations with a lot of pressure and then learn from my mistakes to perform better and better right and so I think like that's why simulations are these touchstones and I think they're critical because there's not very many things that you can like okay let's see if you are the type of person's to be honest, like I was just listening to uh, a podcast. Um, oh, I can't remember his name. He's he was on Jordan Peterson podcast, but he was talking about how our story impacts how we are we perceive the world we live in, and it's so important that that story have a message of optimism and hope because if it's just nihilism, it can really harm us. Um, and they were talking about like how we have um, what uh, they were talking about the communism or uh, sorry fascism and the rise of fascism and they said people want to make fascism look like Darth Vader but fascism isn't Darth Vader fascism is your neighbor who's like a really good person right and it's like the odds of you joining the Nazi party as a Christian in the 1930s is extremely high because fascism didn't look like Darth Vader it looked very much different um and so he's like you don't know like it's a, it's very audacious and almost a, almost asinine to assume that you wouldn't be a Nazi because you really don't know if you would be a Nazi. And I I actually had a friend who did a simulation up in Canada. They would do these uh, in the heyday when um, leadership education was really taking off. They would get together with all the kids in Canada and they do like this once a quarter huge simulation, and they decided to do like Nazis and the the uh, underground uh, in Holland. So they were they they told all the kids that they were in uh, underground in Holland, and all the kids were there. It's like thirty five kids, and they were like they were planning on what to do with their Nazi with their German with their uh, Jewish neighbors, and they were just having this meeting of like what are we going to do with our neighbors? Like what's our role? And so all the kids while they're talking like oh yeah let's save them let's do these things like we're going to step up and do the right thing right, and then <clears throat> they lose power in the building that they were at. Doors open up, and all of the like adults and mentors were like dressed up in like you know Gestapo uniforms or whatever. I don't know how to the extent in which they did that, and they just piled all the kids into the back of like a a, a toy toy hauler. Oh wow! 
and then they drove him down the street. Not, I mean, maybe I was a '90s kid, so this was legal stuff back then. I don't know. Like, <laughs> obviously, you probably drawn a line here. But my friend, he said that like what happened to him was as soon as the lights went on and they started screaming and yelling and telling the people to get into the trailer, he panicked and he just pushed his friends in front of him like dove under the table. And then, like, he was hiding under the table and they didn't see him because there was no lights. And uh, everyone else got pushed. Everyone else ended up getting into the trailer and then they went to just like, I think, just down the block to a different location. And um, anyways, he said he was telling me later about the simulation. He said it was one of the most impactful moments of my life because I realized that I had a choice. Was I going to be that type of person that when push come to sub, I was going to pick me first? Or was I going to be the type of person that I really professed to be and wanted to be which was you know someone who who saw the greater good and who could sacrifice themselves and he's like and then I was given that choice right then to redeem myself and so then from now on when I have experiences in my life like I can look back and be like what what am I choosing am I choosing to throw my friends into the trailer and hide under the table or am I choosing the choice that it's more actually what my character wants to be right and so like you don't you don't want to be given, you want to practice that choice, right? You want to practice that choice in a safe place where if you make the wrong choice, people don't die, right? Because imagine if like we'd had simulations in the Christian churches in Germany where they were practiced. Are you really a Christian or you're not a Christian? You're like, if you could practice those things of facing those realities in a way where it's like, oh my gosh, totally made the wrong choice here. And and then that's a touchdown touchstone to your character like who are you and then you get to choose you get to choose like this is who you are is this who you want to be and I feel like the play the Shakespeare play every year all the kids get to get that choice they all get that choice and um I I remember I, I taught this one class and my lead he just he I knew he was capable of really being phenomenal but he just never got his lines down, just showed up and did half. He just, it was always like halfway doing the work, like barely getting by. And I knew he was just, I'm like, really? Like, you can give me so much and I know you're capable of doing this. Like, why are you doing this, right? And um, I talked to his, his, his parents and I was just like, hey, this is what's happening. He's the lead of the show and he's choosing to not show up. So if you guys have any points any tips, anything, I really appreciate it because he's elite and this is going to suck. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, do carry your show. Um, as much as like you want the whole, everyone plays a big part, but the the lead does play the lead. And I was like, this is going to fail. And so um, the night of opening night, he showed up and he's like 100% amazing, carried it off, had all his lines down, just totally showed up. It was like night and day. Everyone was shocked and so grateful and awesome. Like several years later, I asked him, like, what, what happened? Like, why did you show up? And he's like, well, my dad sat me down and he said, what kind of man do you want to be? Do you want to be the kind of man that lets everyone down around you? Because that's the kind of man you're choosing to be right now. Or do you want to be the kind of man that shows up for those he loves? Your choice. You choose the man you want to be. And like, how many times is a kid given that opportunity in today's world, Right. Uh, they, they aren't. I mean, I was just talking to a friend today who had to deal with a teenager who was acting like a three-year-old in the Walmart and nobody did anything about it. It's like accepted. I mean, there's so many young people today who have never been 
never had their character tested because that whole thing of, you know, giving everybody the, the trophy, you know, making everybody all right, those, you know, safe spaces and, you know, you can't hurt anybody's feelings. It's like, if you want your character to be developed, you have to put yourself and your kids into those challenging situations in order to develop it. And it's like, okay, who am I? Because that's really what youth are doing in their, their teen years. They are figuring out who they are. You want to put them into situations where they can figure that out. And I mean, I can see with the simulations, it's an ideal place because you put them into those hard situations, like your friend who dove under the table and pushed his friends in front of him. And it's like, okay, is that who you want to be? You have a choice who you're going to be from here on out. You don't have to be that person. You can choose to be somebody else. And I just, most of the kids in society today are not getting that choice. They're just being told, no, you can't do that. Let's dumb it down. Let's, you know, everybody gets at least a C. And it's, that's not, and I'm just so grateful that that's not what leadership education is. That's not what Lemmy is. It's uh, about really making, you know, helping kids become the people that they are meant to be in order to make the world a better place. Yeah. So we just um, listened to Old Yeller and you know, I read that book when I was little, but uh, as an adult looking at the perspective of it, um, like to, uh, we listened to it because my little boy he's five now and he's starting to like really like to listen to books and um so whenever we drive anywhere we always have a book playing and so he picked this book saying mom what's a book about a dog and the dog kind of looks like our dog I'm like let's listen to this book I'm like yeah okay are you sure you want the dog book he's like yeah let's listen to the dog book it'll be super super fun I'm like okay i'll turn the dog book on <laughs> like knowing far well like it's gonna happen right and so um you know I, it had been so long since i had read that book that I didn't realize just like the things that's happening to Travis as he's becoming a man, right? You know, his dad leaves him and says, you're in charge. You're in charge in the house. You got to make sure we survive, right? So he takes on this responsibility. He's such a young boy and he's like, he's really struggling, right? And then this dog comes in and just, just as this mentor, which is like crazy to think that this dog is the mentor, right? But the dog really, really does help Travis learn how to become a good man right instead of this like you know he's kind of like a tyrant beating up with his brothers and everything and like doing these things like tyrannical and then old yellow really teaches him how to be like a good a good man um and uh as i'm listening to this book and like you you hear all these stories and they're so entertaining and, and like all the adventures that he, he and his dog go on and then you know obviously what ends up happening in the book is you know his dog saves his life and then gets um rabies and and has to be shot right and he has to shoot his dog right and I don't think I like I think as a kid like after I read that part I and at, at the time I don't think my mom probably really discussed a lot with me because I was younger and I don't think she was really doing the leadership education yet so she didn't know like oh let's debrief this book so it's not so traumatizing you know like <laughs> and so all I remember really was like the dog died this is a stupid book because the dog died right and so, but the last like five pages of the book are really the whole point of the book. We, you know, the whole book 
is all about these five pages and the five pages like don't make it is even probably less than that it's probably like three you know it's a really short part it's like maybe 10 minutes worth of the last part of the book and they all lead up to this conversation where this his dad comes home right and travis says he was nothing brought joy his dad brought him home a brand new amazing horse that should have been like the best thing that should have made him so happy he's like if nothing brought me joy i found no joy in life there was no point in living i was so depressed i couldn't like get anything like anywhere and and his and his dad you know he goes his dad takes him and he says let's go for a walk son and they go to the river and and he says like your mom told me everything that happened and then he's just like so it's horrible what happened there's not really words to express like the pain that you have had to go through and just like everything that you've experienced but then he's like but they have to tell you what it means to be a man is you have to learn to forget he's like but forget old yellow like that seems horrible he's like no no don't forget the good things but you have to learn to forget and let go of the bad and he's like if you don't it'll eat away your soul and you'll never find joy again and he's like and so you know so right then like I stopped the book and I'm like what is the whole lesson of old yeller and and my daughter's like God gives us beautiful amazing things in life and then sometimes we lose them I'm like yeah that's the lesson of old yeller and I think what simulations allows us to do is allows us to have those lessons that kids need. Like, so for example, in a safe way, right? You know, it was a horrible thing that everything happened to Old Yeller and all this stuff, but it ended up being a very safe thing for him because his family was there and, and he could learn all these hard things, right? Because he was going to experience more tribulations and more trials and more things. And he was able to like, you know, heal and, and grow and learn from those things. And I think simulations do that same thing. For every simulation I was successful in, there's probably 10 simulations I totally failed in. I, I could just, I, one simulation where my mentors pulled me out, it was like a week-long simulation. And I went to Georgia University and at the end of every um, spring semester, it was a week-long simulation, it was called it. We called it Hell Week because it was so hard and it was so terrible, it was so painful. But in, in looking back, it, like some people might look at it and be like, oh, it's actually like, you know, physically and mentally abusive week but because we'd stay up to like four in the morning working on these like projects and doing things and like it was just a big thing like and I was like whatever I I look at it as, as it was tough but well worth it and it was the middle of simulation week and I had been put we had a tricameral house <clears throat> and we were like simulating like like it was a futuristic simulation of like what America's government could look like. We had a tricameral house and I was put in, in charge of the house representatives. There's like 50 kids. Like they weren't, I mean, we're college students. So various ages. Um, and I was put in the house and I knew cause I would had already experienced lots of simulations. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get this house. We're going to pick orders. We're going to have things. And so by like, by the first day, my house the house that I was in the house representatives or whatever was running really smoothly we had everything we had our rules booked we had we had appointed we had elections I was speaker of the house we had um and we were starting to pass legislation or starting to create and build legislation because we had everything worked out but in one day um because I because I had, had so much experience in the past like how to run efficient efficient legislative bodies so it wasn't like it was something I knew how to do and the other two houses were like still fighting and bickering over like simple things they couldn't even like get stuff done 
And so by the middle of the week, we were really like a well-oiled machine. Like I had everything running super well. And my mentors were just like, came to me in the middle of it and like, you're done. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm done? We have three more days of this. And they're like, yeah, you're just playing a game. So we're kicking you out. I was like, you can't kick me out. You can't just kick me out of this. And they're like, well, you're just playing a game. This isn't a game. And you're just playing a game. And if you don't take it real, then you don't need to be here. And I was like, that's not fair. You can't take me out. Like, well, then you come back when you decide that you're not going to play this like a game anymore. It's like, this is a game. This is a simulation game, right? Um, And so I was like, what the heck? This is jerks. So I totally leave. I, I think honestly, though, I mean, looking back on it, I was pretty mad, but it ended up being a really powerful lesson to me because I think there's a there was a tendency a lot in in my own personal life to treat a lot of things like a game because I was really good at like reading a room finding the power in the room and manipulating the power (laughs) and laugh at that because I mean like as a young kid I look back like that's probably wasn't the best thing I was like intentionally did it with good intent but it still wasn't I mean I, I guess I just have this innate ability it's definitely a gift of just being able to be like okay how can I play this social structured game in a way that's gonna get what I want done um and so they're like they they were truthful I was playing a game and I was winning the game and and so they pulled me out and they like I they made me play a different role and and different things and but but basically one of the things that really helped me was like you know if I can learn that huge of an insight about my own personal character then in my own relationships and as I went on in life I always had to ask myself okay am I playing a game or am I really trying to do what's right? And it was such a powerful thing for me to realize this huge part of my character weakness that it's not fun to look at. Um, and then allow myself like, as I've grown. And I mean, that was a long time ago um, to, to when I make decisions, I'm like, is this a game or is this like, or are you really 100% in this? Are you being, are you showing up and being hundred percent present? And so like, what I find with even like in my day to day with homeschooling my children, I have to make the choice. Like, am I choosing to be present with my children or am I choosing to play a game? Like, what am I doing emotionally with my kids? Because it's so much easier for me to just show up as a pawn and just be there, but it's way harder for me to show up and be there hundred percent emotionally engaged. And I have to, I have the choice and I get to choose. Um, so I think to kind of sum up our conversation, I think simulations really can be one of the most powerful tools we have to help our students look at themselves and choose who they want to be. Does that make sense? No, it definitely does. It definitely does. I think that um, I, I know that my boys have all experienced simulations that they have built on, you know, going on into adulthood and um it really changes their lives. It, it gives them that. I, I like to think of it as those, those hooks that they can grab onto and just pull themselves up on. It's like, okay, I know I did this. I mean, kind of like what you were doing in that um, uh, community uh, meeting that you arranged. It's like, okay, I know I can do this. I've talked to large groups of people before. That's a hook that you're grabbing onto, pulling yourself up on. I can do this now because I've done it before. And it doesn't matter if it's in a, in a simulation environment or a 
real environment, if you've gone through that, it's something that you can then hold on to and, and pull yourself up on and go forward. And um, yeah, I, I just, I love simulations now um, because, because of that, because it's something that kids can build on, adults can build on. And um, it's, I just think it's great that we do so many of them uh, in the Lemmy projects. Oh yeah. And I also think like if you, if, as we've talked to a lot of our graduates, I found that like the simulations end up being the thing that really are the most impactful for them. Like, yeah, they really are um, the thing they walk away remembering from their school, <laughs> which is like sad because we're like, I spent so many hours on that lecture. Like, I spent <laughs> so long on this. And it's like, no, well, I just remembered the simulation you spent 20 minutes doing. <laughs> so. <laughs> well that's something uh, to learn from too as a mentor that you know less lecture more simulation more games more fun more learning I mean that's that really is it's it's such you know so true that if we put them into that experiential learning I mean we are doing projects not classes projects that project-based learning is something that we're going to have to talk about on another podcast episode because I think that's something we need to dive deep into as well oh yeah that's a we'll have to do a lot more on that and it'll probably take a long time but one last thing before I leave because I just remembered this I want to talk about this is um so there's a type of um so psychoanalytics is the study of psychology right and most of it's based off of Jung and Freud who were contemporaries well Jung was after Freud so I guess you could say like mentor mentee kind of situation and they've developed this whole field and determinism which is I, I really feel like we live in the world of determinism so if, if you're not familiar with that term just definitely look it up but basically it's like I am the way I am because my dad was an alcoholic and he was abusive so I was abused as a child therefore I have very low impulse control or I you know like so justifying who you are today by what happened to you in the past that's determinism so it's like you know you can look at all the people in like the jail systems and stuff oh well they're they were determined to be there because their childhood was so rough like and, and, and you can definitely see that most of them are there right so and I've not really spent a lot of time studying psychoanalytics and psychology because it's like oh, I don't really like Freud it's not my favorite for lots of reasons but I found I've been finding that there at the same time Freud was creating all his things, there was a, a guy by the name of Adler. I can't remember his first name, but it's not Mortimer Adler because he was an American who created the book Great Book series. It was different Adler. He was he was a, a German. Um and he created what's called Adlerian psychoanalytics or psychology. Um and I, so I, I've been reading a book about Adlerian belief systems. And one of the things that a couple of his, just a couple of his tenets is he says, all problems and issues that arise in anyone's life are interpersonal relationship issues. So any problem you have, any pain point, anything you have is comes from an interpersonal relationship problem. So that's one of his belief systems. And the next belief system that he has, which I, th I think is super fascinating, is that the only type of healthy relationships you can have is a relationship that's based off of equality. And um, so he's like, so teacher student relationships are toxic and, and, and not healthy. Because he's like, unless you see each other as equal in this role, 
and treat each other with that equal reverence and then you, you have a, sl a slanted relationship it's always going to be about power and authority and it won't ever be about growth um and then he says and then the last thing he says is that um failure to grow and thrive in this world is because you fail to assume your appropriate role as an individual and so he explained this he's like you know so there's two roles. You have a parent role and a child role, okay? If I constantly tie my student, my son's shoes when he's full, well capable of like motor skills, obviously I'm going to tie my kid's shoe when he's two because he can't even like touch his, you know, his, his, his fingers are just pudgy little things that can't do much, right? But when my child has developed them fine motor skills to be able to do it, let's say four or five, but I constantly tie my stu students, my child's shoes, then I am modeling to my child that the responsibility of learning and being responsible for themselves is not theirs. And that if, if I constantly do that, then I am stopping their growth and then also causing our relationship to be skewed and unhealthy. And I was like, simple things like that? I don't know about that. But then he says, one of the biggest problems you see in education is that the whole system as education is set up in this this role that's like this and um the grade system and everything is set up that's it's set up to like this this power authority line because the student is not allowed to fail because failure then reflects upon the mentor as 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 not success and at the same time the student is never allowed to own their education because they're never allowed to fail and while that it continues to be the the, the relationship of the student and you know teacher then growth and learning doesn't happen because nothing because you have to have your own roles and the role of the student is to learn that is what the role is of the student and as long as you assume as the teacher that that you are the one doing the instruction and you are the one educating you're you won't be able to ever really achieve education because education can only occur in the student and it was super fascinating. Like uh, it's 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 got. He's a huge. He he he's like determinism is not a thing. You have complete and total choice of who you are and and who you want to be. You just have to accept that. And so I I don't know. I to me it was like a, a light of hope. I was like, wait, you know, I'm not like a a mess of all the things that happened to me hundreds of years of genes and like all this stuff. It's like I have choice and who I want to be. This is empowering. This is awesome. Like, um. So, anyways. I think that simulations allow for that failure that's crucial in the development of the self um, because then then that failure happens, then their choice can happen, right? You can choose. Wait, I dropped the ball here. I didn't step up and lead and therefore we failed. I can now assume my role as leader when it's my turn to lead and then I can, I can we can be successful. Um, and so I think it just was a huge light bulb again for me because it's like this is what we do in leadership education. We totally do Adlerian psychoanalytics, and and I think that's why so many kids walk away from Lemmy projects empowered and well on their way to really healthy emotional and social development. I'm just blown away by you know where these kids are um, compared to their peers because they have responsibility for their their education. 
they have they assume responsibility for the relationships in their lives like they're well on their way way to being adults and i think big factor of that is simulations yeah i i I agree i agree and i'm gonna have to get that book title from you um and (laughs) because i want to read it so i have a well so Adler didn't really, he was kind of like a, a Socrates. He never really wrote anything down because uh-huh. he he just, he, most of what he created was by dialogues with his mentors, mentee relationship. So it's kind of like, you know, it's not like Freud where you have like volumes of his works and stuff and his whole psychoanalytics. Um, but uh, I, he, so you can find stuff written by his like mentees that have wrote okay. down his like stuff but the book that I was listening to is like the courage to be disliked is uh, oh that's the one okay yeah courage to be disliked and it's like a it's a dialogue between a mentor and a mentee going through the Adlerian psychoanalytic psychoanalytic uh, philosophy I guess or psychology psychology philosophy awesome but it's, it's a good well book. this is well, I'm, hey, I love doing these because I learned so much from you, Tati. So thank you. I'm gonna, <laughs> and like I've said before, Amazon loves you because I always end up buying more after I've, uh, we've had these. So my husband, on the other hand. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got, I get a lot of them from Libby, uh, Libby, um, whatever the library overdrive app is. And then. Okay. Um, I get them from the library and read them on my Kindle or read them on my computer or listen to them. So try not That's to spend good. like, yeah, I have to limit my book. book. Uh, I, I can't keep buying bookshelves and I can't keep any of these things. So <laughs> limit my, my purchases yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, we are definitely, we've gone over. This was so much fun. Um, have to do it again. So thank you so much, Tati. Yeah, you're welcome. See you. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to this episode. Just as in every Lemmy training, we hope you walk away uplifted and inspired, but also empowered to be a better mentor for your family and your community. Please be sure to subscribe and share. We also want to express our gratitude to all the Lemmy mentors, past and present. You got this. You can do hard things.